We'll hear argument now on number 96667, United States against Hyde. As soon as the commotion dies down. In this case, Justice Kennedy is unable to participate in the oral argument. He will, however, hear the tapes of oral argument and participate in the disposition of the case. Mr. Feldman? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case arises from Respondent's attempt to withdraw from his guilty plea. Pursuant to a plea agreement in which the government agreed to drop certain charges against him, Respondent pleaded guilty to mail fraud and the receipt of stolen property in four counts. At the Rule 11 plea proceeding, the District Court ascertained that Respondent knew the nature of the charges that were brought against him, that he knew of the rights that he would be waiving by pleading guilty, that he knew the maximum sentence that he could face, that the Court also ascertained that his guilty plea was entirely voluntary and uncoerced, and the Court ascertained the facts of the crime as narrated both by Respondent and as narrated by the prosecutor, and then he found out, he ascertained that the Respondent agreed with the prosecutor's account. The Court stated at that point, after having gone through that proceeding, that it accepted the guilty plea and that it would defer the decision about whether to accept or reject the plea agreement. One month later, Respondent attempted to withdraw from his guilty plea. The District Court refused, finding that Respondent had advanced no fair and just reason for doing so. The Court of Appeals reversed that decision, holding that the Respondent could withdraw from his guilty plea at will, for any reason or for no reason, as the Court stated, and reversed the District Court. Now, our position is that Respondent could withdraw from his guilty plea only if he had a fair and just reason for doing so under Rule 32e of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. Because he had no fair and just reason in this case, the District Court properly declined to permit him to withdraw. Permitting the withdrawal of an accepted guilty plea at the free option of the defendant is inconsistent with the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. Rule 32e provides that before sentence, a District Court may permit a defendant to withdraw from a guilty plea if he shows a fair and just reason. Now, the courts that have to determine whether to accept a plea agreement or narrowly will do just what the District Court did here, which is postpone a decision on the plea agreement until at or near the time of sentencing, when they've had a chance to review the pre-sentence report, and accept the guilty plea at the time of the Rule 11 hearing. Under the Ninth Circuit's rule in this case, 
that Rule 32E standard, the fair and just reason standard, would have virtually no application at all. It would apply only for the, the minutes or hours or maybe days from the time that the district court has reviewed the pre-sentence report and can make a decision about whether to accept or reject the plea agreement and the time of sentencing, which is really no time at all. Mr. Feldman, um, there seems to be a certain amount of interchangeability of these terms in, in appellate opinions, acceptance of a plea or acceptance of a plea agreement. Uh, in fact, until this case came along, I don't think I had ever focused on the fact that there might be a difference in the two. We tend to think of a plea as a plea agreement and vice versa. How often is it that these two are separated, the entry of a plea and a subsequent plea agreement, if you will? I, I think, I, you know, I, don't, I haven't been able to get, they are all, let me put it this way, they are always separate in cases, in cases, virtually always separate, in cases where a district court has to make a decision on a plea agreement, which is not in all guilty plea cases, but it's in a great many of them. Well, and how often is it that the district court has to separate the decision. I, as I said, I think it, uh, it is in every case in which the government agrees to drop certain charges in response for the defendant's, in um, exchange for the defendant's guilty plea. Mm -hmm. And when you have that kind of a plea agreement under the sentencing guideline, under the, the federal rules of procedure, the district court is permitted to defer a decision on whether to accept that plea agreement. And under the guidelines, it says that the district court is required to do so. In, all, in virtually all of those cases, and I'll tell you in a minute why I say virtually, in virtually all of those cases, the district court will do just what the district court did here, which is accept the guilty plea in accordance with the rules for accepting a guilty plea in, in Rule 11 and defer decision on a plea agreement. The only reason I say virtually all and not all is there are two circumstances under which that won't happen, even in those charge bargaining types of cases. Uh, one circumstance is where the, the district court defers decision on the plea, whether to accept the plea itself. This is a very rare occurrence, but we cited a couple of cases in our brief where it happened. The district court sees the, listens to the guilty plea, thinks there may be something wrong. I'm not sure. It doesn't really explain why the district court chose to do that, but there's nothing in the federal rules of procedure that requires a district court to accept a guilty plea at the time it's tendered. And so if the guilty, if the court defers decision on whether to accept it, then that all, everything may happen at once, usually at around the time of sentencing, both the acceptance of the plea and of the plea agreement. The other category of cases, which is also rare but not quite as rare as those, is cases where for some reason there was a pre-plea, uh, pre-sentence report prepared. In those cases, um, the district court already has the pre-sentence report at the time the plea is, the plea colloquy occurs under Rule 11, and therefore once again the district court can take care of everything at once and there's no period of time during, between the time except of accepting the plea and a decision whether to accept or reject the plea agreement. But aside from those cases, this, is, this procedure that happened here I think is exactly by the book. It's exactly what's envisioned by the rules of procedure and it will happen in the majority of guilty cases. And if uh, at the end of the day the judge decides not to accept the plea agreement by virtue of what the judge reads in the pre-sentence report, uh, the rules permit the defendant to withdraw from the plea. That's right. The judge must at that point, under Rule, I think, 11, 11E4, I believe, the rule, uh, once the judge rejects the plea agreement, 
At that point, what the, the goal is to put the parties in the same position they would have been in if nothing had happened, none of this had happened, because the agreement can't be carried out. A condition subsequent to the agreement is now fa has now failed. And so what you would do is the same thing as, a, as you would do in ordinary contract cases when that kind of situation occurs. You give the defendant the option of withdrawing his guilty plea, and you, the government, of course, at that point is no longer bound to carry out any commitments it has under the plea agreement. And Do we take this case on the assumption that there was no fair and just uh, reason for the withdrawal within the meaning of the rule? That's right. That's, that, um, that was what the, the Court of Appeals specifically held, uh, that uh, the defendant was permitted to withdraw for any, any reason or for no reason. The district court held that the reasons that were advanced by the respondent were not fair and just reasons. And that hasn't been challenged in this court. So I think that we definitely, the, the case definitely comes before the court uh, uh, in that posture. Mr. Feldman, there's one difference your opponent argues, I don't know how significant it is, that in the scenario you give. The, only, the difference is the judge will have seen the pre-sentence report before the trial, which normally is not desirable. Right. I mean, that, that actually will happen also in any case in which he rejects the plea agreement. I mean, that, that's contemplated by the rules, and that's going to happen. If it looks as if there's likely to be some prejudice that might result from that, the judge the, uh, can recuse himself if it, the case ends up going to trial. In, in fact, uh, it is rare that judges uh, reject plea agreements. Usually those are the agreements of the party. They're subject to, to a number of constraints, and, and uh, judges don't ordinarily reject them. Um, <clears throat> but but that, is, that is something that could happen, and, and that would have to get taken care of that way. Um, how, does it, how does it work with the government? That is, you, I understand. Let's, in a case of a B agreement, this is irrelevant. Right. I would agree with that. I, I see that. Let's imagine it's a C, which is pretty rare, but it's clearer conceptually. All right. You say, Judge, the defendant and I have agreed that it's going to be five years. The defendant says, I like that. I plead guilty. I'm the judge. I say, I'm going to get the pre-sentence report. So I go read it, and I then, having read it, I say, it's okay with me. Everybody's bound. Or I might say, no, I, I want to give him 10 years, in which case the defendant can go and withdraw and go. I understand that. Between those two times of him having pled, I'm guilty, and me, the judge, having read the report, suppose the government says, we don't want to go through with this deal. Nobody's told us in the briefs that obvious question. And you would think what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. What you're saying is that during those periods of times, the defendant, if he wants to get out of this deal, before I can say I accept it, the defendant has to show some cause. Well, I assume absolutely the same is true of the government, isn't it? I, I would agree. And actually, I think Respondent in his brief agrees that the government would be free to withdraw during that period of time. Oh, wait, the opposite. I mean, right? I mean, yeah, but your, your position we also is the government are, is not free to no. withdraw during that time. Our, our position is that neither party is free to withdraw oh, during okay. that time. Okay, sure I just want to be sure it works. Well, well. What, what is it in the rules that prevents the government from withdrawing during that period of time? I, I don't think there's anything thing in the rules. There certainly is nothing in the rules that addresses the government's attempt to withdraw. So why, should the government, why shouldn't the government be free to withdraw if there's nothing in the rules that addresses it? I, I think it's really just based on the contract analogy of plea bargaining that the court has referred to a number of times in the rule in Santa Bella that the government does have to... Santa Bella wasn't a federal case. 
That's correct. But that generally the government does have to fulfill the um, undertakings that it, that it assumes in the connection with a plea agreement. Why is it a contract analogy? Why is it just a contract? There's consideration on both sides, it seems to me. The government's made a promise. The defendant's made a promise. And if you're right about the fact that his guilty plea is not withdrawable, it, it, it's detriment. It can't be undone. I, th- I think, yes. And I think, in fact, even aside from whether there's detriment or not, not there's been an exchange of promises uh, on both sides. And it's generally binding on both sides. There seems to be overlooking one thing. The defendant can withdraw if there's fair and just reason to do so. Why couldn't the government come in and say, we have a fair and just reason. We found out this guy is much worse than we thought he was. I think generally the government's, I'll tell you, things work out, I think things work out a little bit differently. That, that's a possible position, and of course it's not raised by this case, and the government really does attempt to withdraw from plea agreements. But, but all I'm the, suggesting the, is if it's, if, the, if it's an equal balance, both rights are the same, the government does have some right to withdraw that. The government may be able to withdraw those circumstances. I think a better way to look at that kind of a case, though, is where there's been a charge bargain plea agreement. The district court, at the time whether it, when it's called upon to accept the agreement or not, is supposed to look and see whether the, the charges that remain are commensurate with what the defendant did, whether this agreement is in the public interest. So a better way to look at, I think, what happens in those kinds of cases would be that the district court would reject the plea agreement. And indeed, the government might point out to the district court reasons why it should reject the plea agreement. But if the district court doesn't, and it's not really up to the district court, if the district court disagrees and says, you know, this seems like a perfectly, uh, uh, or there's nothing that contravenes public policy or, or the interests of the public or the application of the guidelines in this plea agreement, then the district court will hold both parties to it. And but I you, think you, the government I'm, is I'm not puzzled as to your position. Are you saying that at the time the judge makes his ruling on whether to accept or not, the government is open to the government to argue you should reject this agreement? No, no. I, I, I thought you said I that. think what the government is, I think the government has always an obligation to the court to be frank and to bring to the court any facts that may have come to its attention that maybe it didn't even know uh, in, before. Now, plea agreements come in many different shapes, and some of them do limit the kinds of things the government makes commitments about the kinds of things it will say to the district court. It won't oppose a certain sentence or it, it won't comment on this or that. And whether the government's comments at that point might be a breach of the agreement is really another question. It depends on what the agreement says. There may be an agreement where it's not at all, where the government says we will bring to the court and we're not committing ourselves to, any, uh, to, to telling the court anything in particular. But in any event, whatever the government agreed to, I think it always has an obligation to the court uh, to inform it of the relevant facts that the court should know in order to, to, to pass its judgment. Can, can you go back to a second for Justice O'Connor's question? Because this is another point I'm not certain about from the briefs and from having read this. Imagine we're in an A-type bargain. That's a charge bargain. Initially, there weren't supposed to be very many of those because it wasn't supposed to make a difference to the sentence. But I guess for it to make a difference to the sentence, you have to be in a drug case, what, where there's a mandatory minimum or where you're going to a telephone count from a possession. So there are some where it makes a difference. That's correct. Okay. So we're in one of those circumstances. Now, you, the government, say the defendant is pleading to a telephone count. You do that, defendant? Yes. Now time passes, and I'm the judge, and I've read the pre-sentence report. I say, I don't accept it. What does that mean? What does that mean? I don't accept it. He's pleaded guilty. Does it mean you're free to reinstate the indictment? That, I, I think it contemplates Now, if you decide we're not going to reinstate the indictment, that's your decision. Is that right? 
The, actually, the one you can make me take the telephone count by changing the indictment and going. It can't, can't you? Well, I guess ordinarily the dismissal of the indictment of the charges doesn't occur until after yep. sentencing. So ordinarily the, the charges are still there at the time the judge may reject right. the plea agreement. So Cordova is wrong. That that Ninth Circuit case is wrong. No, Cordova is. I, I don't think Cordova is wrong. Right. Cordova's reasoning, I think, is wrong. But the, the result reasoning is wrong because it said they could force the defendant to change. They can't force the defendant to change. The correct thing to say is, defendant, if you want to plead guilty to the telephone count, fine, that's your business, but the government's free to go ahead and indict you to the possession of intent. That's exactly our position. That's yes. the position. Okay. That not to indict, Thank but to, to continue to trial on the charges that were already, uh, that, that were under which you were already indicted. So what happens, Mr. Feldman, if the government decides under a type A move for dismissal of other charges? But it no longer wants to go through with that. The defendant has pleaded guilty, but the, uh, the trial court hasn't accepted the plea. And so it simply either refuses to dismiss or, or recharges. What can the court do about that? Our, our position is the government under, uh, the court under appropriate circumstances, I think, could order specific performance of that promise. It would really depend and, well, on... Well, well, do you have any uh, judicial authority for that? Well, the, the authority I would have is just the cases where where some problem has arisen in, in, in after a plea bargain where the government has breached a plea agreement and where the government does that generally uh in fact i think this was true in santabello itself uh, but it's also been true in the way the courts of appeals have dealt with federal cases that the case goes back for a determination of what the appropriate remedy be, might be it might be permitting the defendant to withdraw from his uh, end of the bargain and, and yeah, that would presumably be a just reason un under the rule. Right. Or so if you're it, arguing for so much here that the rules simply don't address. Uh, it's true the rules don't address it, and I think you fill in the background. Will they, Mr. Feldman, the, the Rules Advisory Committee in October instructed the reporter to, um, to propose amendments to Rule 11 in response to this very case and another one. Has there been any proposal, proposed revision of Rule 11? Not yet, and I, I really don't know. I, I, I that was going to happen this month. We're supposed we to were supposed it. to report back this month. I don't know. I think uh, it was earlier in, in this, I think it was around April 8th, the reporter was. You know, what, I, I honestly am not aware of what's actually become of that. It's possible that um, after this court uh, granted cert, that uh, uh, whether he continued to work on that or not, I don't know. So you don't know whether any questions that the chief has raised have been addressed in I, the proposal? I don't know, but I'd like to say I, I may be mentioning a number of things that aren't in the rules because you do use contract, uh, the law of contract, to kind of fill in the gaps in plea bargaining. But the basic result in this case, I think, is determined by the rules because, as I said, under the Ninth Circuit's rule, First of all, under, under Rule 32E, the fair and just reason business would have been really entirely illusory. It would apply for a matter of a few minutes. And it's obvious if you look at that rule itself and the purposes behind it and what the advisory committee said when it added that in 1983, that was a rule, that was an important step. It was intended to bolster uh, the respect and the dignity of, of plea proceedings. Plea proceedings are governed by Rule 11, which has, uh, in A, B, C, and D of that rule, has extensive provisions about exactly how a plea has to be taken, all of the, the steps the judge has to take, which, in fact, the judge took here. And that once a defendant has gone through all that, nobody should have the illusion that they're just free to walk away from it with no consequences at all, especially if they don't have a fair and just reason to do so. 
it's also our position that Rule 11 itself dictates this result in, in the circumstances of this case. Rule 11 in A, B, C, and D talks about the plea and about accepting the plea. It doesn't, I don't think, mention the word plea agreement, or if it does, it talks about plea agreements. It's quite clear it's talking about pleas. It gets to E, which is entitled Plea Agreement Procedure, and E was the provision that was added to deal with plea agreements. And the rule makes perfect sense and is perfectly consistent in its very precise differentiation between those provisions that have to do with acceptance of a guilty plea, which has to do with the defendant's confession in open court as to what he did, and those provisions that have to do with the plea agreement, which is an entirely different question, which has to do with the nature of the bargain and is treated in the E provision. Um, and indeed, in, in Rule um, 11E4, uh, the provision that, we, uh, that was uh, mentioned earlier, uh, where it says that, the court, that, that if the court rejects the plea agreement, the defendant shall be permitted to withdraw his plea, um, the whole notion there that the defendant can withdraw the plea, I, I think, has as its underlying assumption that there's been a valid binding plea entered at that point, and there has been. Um, so I think the result that we're urging here is dictated by the federal rules. I also think the result we're urging here is dictated by the law of contract. I think this is a fairly straightforward situation of a, of a, of a contract involving an exchange of a, performance, of a performance by the defendant for a promise by the government to do something later, subject to a later condition. And everybody's bound to that unless the condition, it, it, once the plea is accepted, once the plea is accepted by the district court, unless the later condition doesn't occur. I think that if they're under the Ninth Circuit's rule, there would be a great deal of instability injected into the plea bargaining process. Um, a defendant at any time during the several months that it takes to prepare the pre-sentence report can just say, I changed my mind, um, I don't want to go ahead and do this. At that point, uh, everything stops. Well, that is, is, is a process that's at the unilateral whim of the defendant that's open to manipulation. It's open to a defendant who wants to obtain uh, a severance from co-defendants to plead guilty and then just change his mind later. It's open to the possibility that a defendant who's just trying to delay uh, inevitable imprisonment uh, could do that. It's even open to a defendant who sees that, that the government, in, in this case, for example, the uh, guilty plea was taken at the morning of trial, which is not at all uncommon. Once the, you see that the government has already assembled all of its witnesses once, a couple of months later, there may be some witnesses who are unavailable, there may be witnesses who are no longer uh, in the jurisdiction, or even in a, in a sufficiently uh, um, extreme case, the defendant might take steps to see to it that those things happen. All of those things can happen if you give the defendant this free window of several months after the plea to just change his mind. And I, I think that if the advisory committee had proposed that kind of a rule, I think it clearly would have been rejected because of the instability it lends to the process. Um, another consequence it can have is that the preparation of the pre-sentence report itself ordinarily requires the cooperation of both the defendant and the government. Now, presumably, if both parties are free to just withdraw at whim during this period between the guilty plea proceedings and the, uh, uh, basically and sentencing, um, it would be, it's very hard for the parties to lend the kind of cooperation to the, the pre to the probation officer uh, that they would have to do, since neither is sure that the information that they're providing wouldn't ultimately be, uh, uh, they're now revealing it to a party who could easily, at that party's own whim, become the opposing party uh, at a trial. And I think it would make preparation of those reports very difficult. And again, in this case, in fact, the preparation of the pre-sentence report was delayed while all of these proceedings were going on in the district court because respondent uh, did, wasn't cooperating with the probation officer uh, during that period. 
Um, finally, I, I think that it's inconsistent with the dignity and respect that judicial proceedings should have that a formal Rule 11 proceeding in open court um, should have should basically be able to be rendered a nullity by the defendant's unilateral uh, action. A defendant, if you read, I, I think it's worth re looking at the um, at the plea proceeding here, which is in the joint appendix, and it was all gone through very carefully with the defendant. He knew what he was doing. He knew the nature of the charges and the possible sentence. Um, and all, he shouldn't be able to walk out of the courtroom and then say, well, I haven't decided yet whether I'm going to plead guilty. It's true I just, under oath, told the court about the facts of the case. I confessed. I went through all this. But I may change my mind, and I'll make up my mind in a couple of months. Um, Mr. Feldman, do you happen to know off the top of your head what percentage of uh, convictions in the federal system are on, on guilty pleas and how many after trial? It's, it's in the 90 percent range. That's over 90 percent still, isn't it? It's in that range, yeah. Um, if there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Very well, Mr. Feldman. Mr. Stoglin? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the determinative question in this case is whether the District Court can accept a guilty plea before it approves of the plea agreement upon which it depends. In this case, and in its earlier decision, Cordova-Perez, the Court of Appeals correctly recognized that a plea and a plea agreement are so inextricably bound up together that deferral of acceptance of one carries with the deferral of acceptance of the well, other. Do, do you have to go against the text of Rule 11e to do that, to, to take your position? And the reason I ask the question is this. I, I'm reading, I'm actually reading from the, the rule as it's set out on 4a of the, the back of the government's brief. What about just a second? Uh, the, the first paragraph, uh, right at the touch, the carryover paragraph at the beginning. Uh, if the agreement is of the, uh, the charge bargaining or the, the, the definite sentence type, the court may accept or reject the agreement uh, or may defer its decision uh, until there's been an opportunity to accept the pre-sentence report. It's clear from that that the court does accept the agreement, may, uh, and, 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 and effectively may, under the rule, uh, without waiting. Isn't, isn't that correct? That's correct. Okay. And, and under the, in, the, in the following sentence, if the agreement is of the type specified in subdivision B, uh, the, the court may advise, shall advise the defendant, uh, that if the court does not accept the recommendation, i.e., that which is part of the agreement, the defendant nevertheless has no right to withdraw. So in each of those instances, the A, the B, and the C instance, the rule provides explicitly, as I read it, for acceptance of the plea without regard to what may ultimately happen to the terms of the agreement. There are, of course, further provisions in the A and B type, and there's a further provision, just cause, for the A and C type, and just cause provision for the, for the B type. But the text seems to me very clear that the court may operatively accept the agreement right then and there. And isn't that inconsistent with your argument? I, I don't think so. I, I think the, the rule permits the judge to accept the agreement at the time of the plea he hearing, or Rule 11 hearing, or may defer its decision until later. Uh, whether it's going to do that is going to depend on, on 
the information available at that time. Mm -hmm. And petitioners argued that uh, deferral is required in these cases, uh, type A charge bargain or type C sentence stipulation agreements, such that uh, where there's deferral in all these cases, that in no none of those cases can the judge accept the agreement earlier and thus uh, Rule 32E's fair and just standard disappears for that period of time. That's not necessarily required. The rules, uh, particularly Rule 32, permits the judge, in fact, to sentence a defendant without a pre-sentence report. Uh, and there's certainly authority that the judge can accept the plea agreement, uh, the rules permit it, without the pre-sentence report. And at that time, if the pre-sentence report uh, is not needed, the judge can say, I accept your plea agreement. And at that time, the defendant is bound uh, well, is, is, it, is it your point that the, def that the court has got to use the magic word, accept? Is that what you think the case turns on as distinct from the rule that the Ninth Circuit employed? I think what it turns on is when the judge can accept the plea as opposed to the plea agreement. Well, let, let me ask a different question. Do you defend the rule that the Ninth Circuit applied? Yes. Well, the rule, as I understand it, applied by the Ninth Circuit was that until the final determination is made as to whether or not the terms of the plea agreement will be honored, there is, in fact, nothing binding upon the defendant, and the defendant can simply either withdraw or say, oh, well, it doesn't mean anything. Are you defending that position? Yes. How is that position consistent with the text that we just went over uh, from E, which seems to, seems to me to say quite clearly uh, that the plea can be accepted by the court even though the terms of the plea agreement may or may not be honored uh, and there being various consequences that follow if they are not. But the text of the rule seems very clear that the court may accept the plea even though we don't yet know what's going to happen uh, to the terms of the plea agreement. Uh, Justice Souter, I think I would disagree that the rule says the court can accept the plea in, in that section. It says may accept or reject in the one sentence, and in the other uh, it says the court shall advise the defendant that if the court does not accept the recommendation or request of the defendant, the defendant nevertheless has no right to withdraw the plea. Aren't those pretty clear indications that the court may accept the plea regardless of what happens later to the terms of the plea agreement? Only with the type B agreements. In the first sentence that you referred to, uh, it refers to the court may accept or reject the agreement. With type A and type C agreements, those are the charge bargain agreements and sentencing stipulation agreements, the, those are the types where the court may defer acceptance of the agreement. With the type B agreements that are referred to in the, in the second sentence, uh, there is no moment for the judge to approve of the agreement. Approval of the plea carries with it approval of the agreement in the case of the type P, B sentencing recommendation agreements. So you would say in the A and C cases, even if the judge says in open court, I accept the plea, but I will determine later on whether I will accept the agreement and I will wait until after the sentence report. The judge's statement in that case simply is not effective. It's not effective to the extent that the judge purports to bind the defendant to that plea. It, it may be 
effective to the extent the judge has made findings that the plea has been entered knowingly and voluntarily. The judge has gone through the litany of, of, of determining whether it's knowing and voluntary. Mr. Stoglin, I thought Rule 32 had some bearing on the case uh, that says if a motion to withdraw a plea of guilty is made before sentence is imposed, the court may permit the plea to be withdrawn if the defendant shows any fair and just reason. Uh, why doesn't that govern what happens here? For, for a couple of reasons. First of all, the, the petitioner has agreed, and this is referred to the reply brief at page 9, that that rule, that standard uh, in Rule 32 only applies or, or applies where there is a tendered and accepted plea. We've argued that there has been no accepted plea, although the judge purported to do so. Her label Although the control. judge said he'd accepted the plea, but he hasn't made a decision on the plea agreement. And the government says there's a difference between the two. You say there's no difference between the two. There's, there's certainly a difference between a plea and agreement. You can have a plea without an agreement. But you, my argument is that you can't accept one without the other. And this is based on, on the structure of Rule 11. Uh, that rule was amended in 1974. For the first time, that, that rule provided that the court could do what we've just described, which is defer approval of the agreement uh, pending review of the pre-sentence report. To make that review possible, Rule 32 was also amended to permit uh, review of the pre-sentence report prior to a conviction. Rule 32 had already allowed that there be pre review of the pre-sentence report submitted to the judge, reviewed by the judge, where there had been a, a uh, finding of guilt, whether by a, a guilty plea or, or a conviction by, by, before a, trial, a jury trial. Uh, if the judge could accept the plea but not the agreement, there would have been no need to amend Rule 32 to, to permit that early review of the pre-sentence report. I mean, but you can swear it a little bit with the language, but my goodness, I, I've never seen anything like this before. With the, I've never seen this, uh, what the Ninth Circuit has done before. I thought that the, the basic idea of this whole procedure is that the defendant pleads guilty, the judge then calls for the pre-sentence report, everybody gets a chance to look at it, you know, and then, of course, the defendant's bound if the judge accepts it. Imagine the contrary. The contrary would be the defendant would sit there. He'd say, I plead guilty, but it wouldn't mean anything. Now I'm going to get a really good chance to see the evidence against me. I'm going to, moreover, get a perfect chance to know what every witness has said. This is a fabulous discovery. And I know what the prosecution will have said, and I know what my, I know everything. Maybe that's a, maybe that's a, as it should be. But, but, but this is still something of a change, wouldn't it be, to have a total uh, pre-sentence report available to everybody prior to the defendant actually being bound? If, maybe that's a good idea. I don't know. Or maybe, maybe it's not. But, but it would represent a considerable change, wouldn't it, in most places? If that were the response, if the response to the decision were be to be to produce a pre-sentence report prior to the Rule 11 hearing, prior to the defendant being bound, that would be a change. And then why isn't that? You're, That's why, not necessarily the response. Why, why isn't that the interpretation? Why isn't that what would happen if we accepted your view of the law? That's one possibility. Another possibility is that the district court 
could make its decision on whether to accept the plea without a pre-sentence report. Oh, well, the, the guidelines are very much against that, aren't they? I mean, it, it's very hard to ask a judge to do that without knowing the underlying circumstances, isn't it? That's correct. I think at the time the Rule 11 hearing is held, though, mm-hmm. a great deal of information is known. Presumably the government has investigated their case and produced That's discovery, true. and there's a great deal known about the seriousness of the offense. In this case, uh, Mr. Hyde was charged with eight counts of fraud. He pled guilty to four counts of fraud. Uh, How do you feel about the opposite? Because I guess if the defendant is free to withdraw, so could the government. And now what the government's going to do is get a really nice look, not only at uh, at its own evidence, but get quite a nice look at at what the defendant's going to go and present to the uh, probation officer, you know, by way of excused mitigation and everything. Then the government reads all that and says, oh, by the way, uh, we changed our mind. I take it that would not be something you'd particularly like, but again, the sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander, you'd have to... I, 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 I would not like it. I, I'm not sure that that's re- the required result. If you look at it purely as two equally bargaining parties, uh, that would be the logical re- result of the argument. But that's not necessarily really what's, what you have. Uh, defendants are not your true... Uh, equally or fully capably uh, negotiating part well, how, how would you reason through the result you want? That if the defendant is not bound by the plea, as you say, that the government nonetheless is? There are, first of all, there is no parallel provision to Rule 32E, uh, I'm sorry, to, to, yes, to Rule 32E, which allows the defendant to withdraw of showing a fair and just reason. There's no parallel provision for that for the government. There's a recognition in that that there's a little more freedom available to a defendant withdrawing than there is for the government. Government's going to need to show some sort of well, breach or fraud. Uh, un- un- unless you say that since it says uh, the rule says nothing about the government being bound, that perhaps the government should be able to withdraw regardless of a just reason. The rules simply don't address that. Rule 32 doesn't address that squarely. I think there are some lower court decisions that... Well, but those aren't rules, are they? That's correct. When a defendant has offered the plea, there's been some sort of partial performance, whether that's accepted by the court or not. The defendant has come into court and said, I'm willing to waive some very important constitutional rights. And on top of that, the defendant admits the conduct that's that's alleged. Uh, To that extent, the defendant has to some degree rely on the agreement. Uh, that, that there may not be the same sort of alliance by the government at that stage. Government very often does not have to perform what it's promised until sentencing. Well, how is he relied on your view? Seems to me his reliance is absolutely free on your view because he can withdraw, and I presume you're not conceding that anything he had said in the plea colloquy can be used against him. It could be used in, in limited circumstances in, in a, a trial under perjury, but that's not the primary concern. The petitioner has recognized... Well, then he, then he, hasn't, he hasn't given up much. Well, the petitioner recognizes, and this is in the reply brief in footnote 8, that such information could be used in other ways. Even if it can't be used at a, at a trial, it could be used to, to uh, have, let the government think about other, other investigations, open the door... Other avenues. Deny him government employment, perhaps. Perhaps. 
So is it your argument that what the defendant has partially performed is sort of the equivalent of what the government would be disclosing in the pre-sentence report, so that therefore it's perfectly fair for the defendant to be able to wait until the pre-sentence report is in to decide whether or not he wants to withdraw his plea? Is that your argument? Well, the reason the defendant is free to withdraw is that — No, but is that your argument? I just want to know if I'm understanding you correctly. I'm not sure I — if you could rephrase it. The question that Justice Breyer raised was if the defendant may withdraw at will under a rule like the Ninth Circuit rule, then the defendant can sit back and wait for a pre-sentence report, which is in fact going to be there before the judge sentences in almost every case. And if the deal is not final by the time he reads the report, he could simply withdraw his plea. And I thought that you — and the implication being that would be a very strange system for the rules to provide, because that would give the defendant a terrific advantage in discovery. And I thought your argument was, well, the defendant is partially performing simply by standing up and going through the plea colloquy. The defendant is giving the government something which it might use as a lead to further investigation and so on. And so, therefore, it's perfectly fair for the defendant to get the benefit of the plea agreement if the government gets the benefit of this partial performance. And I thought that was the ultimate point that you were making. Do I understand you correctly? That was the point I was making. I don't think that that's the most fair situation. Truly, that is not what is presented by the facts of this case. This is not something the Court necessarily has to reach in deciding this case, whether the government would be free to withdraw if there's been some sort of reliance by the defendant. Mr. Sullivan, can I take you back to Rule 32e? Was it your assertion that the government concedes that that only applies after the plea has been accepted? That's correct. As opposed to the plea agreement. Correct. We're talking now we're dealing with two separate things, a plea of guilty and a separate plea agreement. I think there are actually three things that could be meant by the term plea of guilty. It could be a defendant tendering a plea. The Petitioner stated there are circumstances that are rare where a defendant tenders a plea and the judge Well, when you say tenders a plea, does it talk about tendering a plea here? I mean, you plead guilty. You either plead guilty or you don't plead guilty. I don't know. Where a defendant says I plead guilty is what I've been referring to as a tendered plea. An accepted plea, which is what Petitioner stated is required before Rule 32e applies, is where the judge says I accept the plea. The judge said that here. The judge said that here. Our argument is essentially that the judge did not have legal authority to do that. Looking at the structure You say somehow the rules don't permit a separation of a plea of guilty and a plea agreement. That's right. But textually, it clearly does in the one instance. I mean, there's an express provision that says the judge will tell him that if I don't ultimately follow the recommendation, i.e., in a B situation, you still can't withdraw the plea. So clearly, there is an irrefutable textual basis for saying 
that he can accept the plea, uh, leaving the plea agreement in limbo in that circumstance, right? Precisely. I think that's not the case here. This case involved charge dismissal uh, concessions by the government as a term of the plea, such that there was a requirement that the judge accept the agreement. With a Type B agreement, there's no reason for the judge to accept the agreement. The judge has ultimately no, there's no limitation on the judge's sentencing discretion under a purely Type B uh, agreement where the prosecution only has to make a recommendation as the ultimate sentence. But in an A and C situation, the defendant has an absolute right to withdraw his plea if, in fact, uh, the, the charge part of the agreement uh, or the, the absolute sentence uh, part of the agreement is not kept, right? If the promise is not kept, that's right. Then it can withdraw, correct. And, and so uh, doesn't that imply uh, that in those situations, too, the plea can operatively be accepted? Otherwise, there would be no need for those provisions, I suppose. The provision for acceptance of the agreement? The, the, pre, the provisions for withdrawal of the pleas if, in fact, uh, the agreements are not accepted and kept. Well, the, the provision for withdrawal of the plea in Rule 32E doesn't describe whether it's talking about a, a tendered plea, an accepted plea, uh, a plea where both the, the plea and the agreement and the, and the answer to that may be, just as Justice Scalia said, a plea is a plea. And once it's there, it's operative, unless, in fact, it is subject to, to one of these uh, withdrawal or reexamination provisions. But again, the, the petitioner has, has conceded that that's not the case. And I think the, the, the answer may be in the, in the Mabry case of this court, where the court held that the agreement is not binding until accepted by the court. And in that case, it was a situation where the government had made an offer, which the defendant accepted. The government then attempted to withdraw. The defendant sought enforcement of that offer, the withdrawn offer. And the court said, no, you hadn't, uh, that offer had not been approved by the court. Mr. Stoglin, if you look at the, uh, or you, you witnessed um, Rule 11, please, and it was with all due solemnity and the district judges telling the defendant all of his rights, and the defendant pleads guilty. Now, one wouldn't perceive of that procedure in court as something that's tentative. Um, so there's something that doesn't quite fit, and that the, 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 the rules are meticulous in instructing the judge about advising the defendant of his rights, and anyone who comes into a courtroom and sees that that's how we do justice in the United States. And th- but then you say that this is, is just a, it's just a, a femoral thing, that it's not real. And when the judge, judge says, now, knowing all that, do you plead guilty? And the defendant says, yes. And the judge says, I accept it, that all that is uh, kind of make-believe. It's not ephemeral if the judge accepts the plea agreement, which the judge has discussed. But there is no agreement at that, at that point that the judge, the judge hasn't been presented with the agreement. No, the rules do require the, the parties, when they come into the Rule 11 proceeding, to, to advise the court. But he hasn't accepted it because he's waiting for the pre-sentence report. 
the rules permit the judge to accept it earlier. With some types of agreements, that's very possible. In this case, the judge's sentencing authority was, could hardly be said to have been limited by the agreement. It was an agreement to, to uh, plead to four counts of an eight-count indictment on, on a fraud case. Uh, the maximum sentence under the charged offenses was 50 years. The maximum sentence under the plea agreement was 30 years. Uh, under the rules, the guidelines, which this court recognized in Watt recently this, this year, the court can consider non-convicted conduct, relevant conduct. So all that conduct that was part of this risk counts can be considered at sentencing. The judge's sentencing authority was not limited in any respect by the plea agreement. So the judge could accept that agreement without at all limiting the th- his or her sentencing authority without waiting for the pre-sentence report. And that may be the case in many, many cases. If there are cases where uh, there is uh, a reason to think that the sentencing discretion is going to be limited in some way, where there is a, a, a mandatory minimum sentence that might be eliminated, or where there's a very low maximum sentence in the charge or, or the pleaded to, to agreement or, or, or count, uh, that there will be significant limits on the judge's sentencing authority. In those cases, the judge would want to see, may want to see the pre-sentence report. It's possible to have that pre-sentence report prepared earlier. The rules specifically provide for that. Uh, and as uh, uh, Judge uh, uh, Stafford, uh, the chief judge of the Northern District of Florida, stated in, in an article, most of the information needed is available at that time, at the time of the plea hearing, even without a pre-sentence report. So there are many instances when that, that could, be, could be accepted. The, the guidelines say that the judge really should wait, don't they? That's right. get the pre-sentence report. The guidelines do. Uh, the guidelines use, use mandatory language. The rules use, use permissive language. Uh, I think that this is something. Uh, Rule 32, which talks about use of a pre-sentence report for sentencing, as opposed to acceptance of the plea agreement, recognizes you don't always need the pre-sentence report. The judge can rely on the record if, if the judge states on the record that, that they find sufficient information on the record to, to sentence. The same thing would apply uh, with a, with a, a, a plea agreement. The Mr. Judge- Stockland, you mentioned a law review commentary about what is being done, uh, whether you need a pre-sentence report. Uh, do you know, I'm asking you the question I asked Mr. Feldman, since the Rules Advisory Committee were alerted to the problem by the very case that we're reviewing, and we're going to take a look at Rule 11 to see if they should make some proposed alterations. Do, do you know uh, of what kinds of alterations, or any, do you know any, anything more than Mr. Feldman did about where that sits? I, I, I do not know whether they're taking any action. Uh, I have uh, attempted to find out a couple, a couple of weeks ago to learn that the next meeting had not been held yet. That will be uh, coming up, I, I believe it was April 8th. Uh, if uh, I, I'm able to obtain that, uh, that, that there is something that the, the, the Rules Committee is, is uh, taking up with that, we'll certainly, uh, with the Court's permission, lodge that with the Court uh, after, after the hearing. But uh, that does raise a question that, that, you know, can this be dealt with in some other way? If the rule has not addressed the situation, uh, if the guidelines 
having some way increased the frequency with, with which judges defer approval of the agreement uh, by using mandatory language. Uh, perhaps the way to, to resolve the, the conflict is, is, is to have the, the Sentencing Commission take another look at this. The Sentencing Commission or, or the Rules Committee through the Rules uh, Amendment procedure. But that, that's not a possible disposition. Well, I mean, we can affirm or we'll reverse. We can't say the Sentencing Commission should take another look. Uh, we have to decide this one way or the other. Or, or, well, I mean, the other option would be a, a dismissal uh, finding that, that certiorari had been improvidently granted uh, on the ground that... Or a reversal, because we don't agree with you. That's... That's uh, awesome. Uh, I also want to address for a moment some of the, the floodgates arguments that the government has made. As, as I stated, this is not... Uh, does not apply to all agreements. There are agreements that don't even fall under the, the types addressed by uh, the rules. There are cooperation agreements that are not described in the rules. Those do not require a deferral of acceptance of agreements. So there are many agreements where the judge can accept the agreement at the plea hearing. Uh, there are also many disincentives for a defendant to back out of an agreement uh, the way that the government has suggested will, will happen frequently or to use it for delay. Defendants want speedy trials. Uh, there are, are, of course, there's, of course, the Speedy Trial Act that reflects that there are, is an interest for defendants to have quick resolution of these cases. If a defendant does seek to withdraw, uh, and the government thinks this is for delay or to obstruct justice in some way, that defendant upon going to trial will get, uh, will lose acceptance of responsibility uh, reduction, which is a three-level reduction in sentence. Uh, a two or three level of reduction in sentence, sentencing levels. Uh, they could also face an enhancement for obstruction of justice under the guidelines or a separate prosecution for obstruction of justice if they are using this somehow to manipulate, to delay proceedings so that government witnesses are lost. The reality is that... The reality is that'll never happen. They're, they're, they're not even... I mean, even perjury prosecutions for, for obstruction of justice are pretty rare. Yeah, this won't happen. They are rare. It, it, it is possible, and I, and I would rely more on the loss of acceptance of responsibility, which is very often could be what motivates the defendant to plead, is that reduction, which is, can be significant, up to 20 percent, 30 percent reduction in sentence, which they're not going to get if they go to trial. Uh, that's, that's a tremendous deterrent. I think the defendant's withdrawing from these pleas. Uh, The, uh, the, the, it's been mentioned earlier that the rate of conviction by plea agreements, or by, by guilty plea, is 90 percent. It has been over 90 percent. It has been a, that, that high for quite a bit of time, since, uh, at least since, since the 1960s. We cited some, some reference to statistics like that. Uh, so there are, there's a great deal of stability in guilty pleas. There is, if, if something significant has been offered to defendant, they're going to plead guilty, uh, and they're going to stick with that plea. It's going to be a rare defendant that's going to, going to want to back out of that. Uh, it's one of, the point of emphasis. The question here is, really, can the court do what it purported to do in this case, which was accept the guilty plea at the time that it did? The rules, the structure of the rules show that they cannot. In that situation, Rule 32E does not apply, and the uh, uh, defendant is free to withdraw. 
Uh, if the Court has no further questions. Thank you, Mr. Stoglin. Uh, Mr. Feldman? <clears throat> I, I just had one point I wanted to make. For purposes of this case, this is in response to Justice Scalia's question, um, we have accepted that it's the, that at least at the latest time when the district court accepts the plea, the parties are bound. Now, whether at some earlier point uh, the parties may be bound or not is really not something that arises here because it was done so carefully in, in, in this case. What, and that what, we said that in our brief. What's, what's the best textual support for your position? What, what, is, what is the provision of the rules that you think is the one? I, I, I guess it's hard for me to answer because I do think there's several of them, but I, I think 32E uh, would be rendered a nullity in a, most cases if the Ninth Circuit's view were right. And I, I don't think that rendering, I, I think that, that that would be the, the, the strongest one, in my view. I also think there are provisions of Rule 11, uh, as I mentioned before, that, that clearly distinguish between pleas and plea agreements. Thank you, Mr. Feldman. The case is submitted.